Hello everyone and welcome to another hot and sunny podcast. We say it's hot and sunny, you could be listening to us in the drizzle, but that's your shout. I'm Mike, this is UK Motor Talk, and with me today there is... Jim, good evening. Uh, Graham, good evening from a car park on East Mont Seafront. And from the slightly less exotic Surrey, it's Dave. How are you all doing? Not so bad, not so bad. Although, of course, it might not be hot and sunny by the time uh, this all gets edited and put out. I think we've got some thunderstorms on the way, haven't we? Which would be quite mm, good. It's, well, it'd be, be good fun to watch, I think. But just for the purposes of the tape, uh, Graham does have a purpose being, being sat in the car park. He's sat in his Volvo. For those who want to picture this, just so you can hear where he is in your mind or visualise where he is in your mind, he is currently sat in his Volvo looking quite resplendent as our, our mobile reporter. Uh, hopefully we'll we'll just comment and throw out anything exciting that he sees on the way, uh, preferably motoring related. Although, let's face it, you guys kind of know that we we have a habit of disappearing off on a tangent. Yes, just a bit. So since the last time we spoke, then what have we been up to? Well, I've been sitting in the car park for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we start with our uh, our usual uh, UK motor talk obituary of people that have died in the motoring world over the last couple of weeks? I think we've had uh, oh yes Mansour OJ, haven't we? The um, we one have. of the founding fathers i suppose of the uh of the current mclaren f1 team as we know it and um just a, a really nice outpouring of emotions in the paddock you know even even red bull uh dedicated checo's rather uh action-packed and, uh, and spectacular victory to mansur oj and it's a uh, it's very rare you get a character like that who was uh, an owner and such a big part of one team getting that kind of support from everybody else i mean sort of nicky lauda was uh was obviously the last big character to get such cross-team support like that um but it was uh it was touching to see all the tributes and uh certainly a big part of mclaren and uh he will be missed universally liked by everyone very popular in the pit lane you're quite right uh, david he was not one to seek attention to himself but uh, certainly he was always there uh, he was always around chatting to people he helped uh, really helped fan uh, the mclaren team certainly uh, with ron and uh, on a number of occasions helped fund the team uh, and not just that team. There are suggestions that um, he helped fund other teams at various times. He was a man who uh, of great wealth who chose to invest money in F1 wherever he could. Yeah, lovely guy. And as as you both rightly said, universally liked throughout the paddock. He had his... Uh, I'd say probably about the only person that uh, would say a bad thing against him nowadays would be Ron Dennis, because famously they had a falling out, which ended up with Ron being ousted from the board of the company he helped co-found, ultimately, with Mansour. But um, I, it's a it's a terrible shame. The man was in motorsport 43 years, if you include his time with Williams. And, uh, and it's testament to the man that even when he left Williams, he wanted to share the engine that was going to be co-developed by TAG uh, with Williams and McLaren, and that involved him wanting to buy into the Williams team at the time. But Patrick and Frank didn't want to sell the company, so he was ultimately, that was him. He was off to McLaren, and the rest is history, as they say. But, you know, a truly likeable man, truly honourable, and um, a, a great influence. And I think his, um, his loss will be felt throughout the, the whole industry. 
Yeah, I think the uh, the paddock could certainly do with uh, a few more characters like Mansoor, couldn't it? If one reads the uh, the uh, supposedly behind the scenes book, the Piranha Club, which looks at uh, the dealings of all the drivers, and particularly the team bosses, but I don't think anybody in you know, amongst the team bosses had a bad word to uh, say about him. But then uh, he bailed a number of them out when uh, times were difficult. So uh, pretty much he was liked by everybody and. Uh, I think probably just about everybody in F1 owed him a favour at some time or other. So from McLaren then to McLaren then, because they they have made some news this week. Slightly shocking news, if you'll uh, if you'll pardon the pun. It was a McLaren have announced they're venturing into another realm of motorsport, but. Uh, I, I think you kind of expect any uh, any big manufacturer like that if they were going to enter into a branch of uh, electrified motorsport for it to be Formula E, uh, but they've gone hmm. for Extreme E, which is a slightly left field. I mean, I is is there a bit of a I don't know? Are, are manufacturers and people turned off by Formula E? Is it is it is it star not burning as bright as once it did, or is uh, is Extreme E just the uh, the exciting hot topic? So why not? Let's have a little dabble in that. Well, I, I, think, I think there are two things. It's it's a bit uh, Formula E's become a bit overshadowed at the moment by Extreme E, but also uh, McLaren. I, I think this is more a venture by the McLaren sports car arm, and uh, it's of greater interest, I think, to them than is Formula E, which were the other way around. Were the Formula One team, then Formula E might well make sense to them as a, a driver training academy or even somewhere to uh, park those drivers that uh, pass their sell-by date, which is what other teams seem to do. Or perhaps it's, um, if, as you rightly said there, the um, the sports car division are the ones that are driving this, pardon the pun. Um, can we expect an EV on the cards from McLaren at some point in the not-too-distant future? Obviously, they've got the sports car market pretty much sewn up, but um, you know, people are moving into SUVs now. Bentley, Rolls-Royce even have them. You know, Ferrari have one in the pipeline, and electric is the way to go. So this could be a very good toe in the water, a way of gaining some very good and very useful experience in that market is this shaping up for an suv uh let alone an electric suv but uh mclaren suvs well we all said it couldn't possibly happen with ferrari couldn't possibly happen with lamborghini but it's happened with a pair of them so you know aston martin mm. have got an suv so i think mclaren need an suv don't they they've been criticized for bringing out uh possibly slightly too many different models of what is essentially the same thing so is is an suv does that give them a, a completely different direction to go in and, and does the uh, the electrified side of things help their co2 targets and things like that i mean obviously you know everything is is going to have to be fully electric by 2030 anyway so mclaren need to uh, to be fully electric just as bmw ford alfa romeo audi and everybody else needs to so does this uh, does this help them along that route they're not quite bread and butter, are they, SUVs? But they do pay the bills. I think if you think what Lamborghini have done with Urus and, as you say, Ferrari and, and Aston Martin now, is it a good place to be able to demo what you can do? Probably yes. The other thing is I think there's a lot of big names behind Extreme E. And I think that's quite attractive as well. So that it seems to have had perhaps a bit more celebrity endorsement. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think perhaps that's part of the attraction. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I think to have Lewis Hamilton involved whilst he's still active in Formula One, 
to have Rosberg in there whilst he's not long retired from Formula One and that's reigniting the, the Hamilton-Rosberg rivalry and to have Jensen Button involved as well. There, there are, you know, there's some huge household, particularly UK, household names in there. And it and does just seem drivers. to be that slight bit more exciting than Formula E, I dare say, just in, in terms of sort of name recognition. You know, if uh, if you asked, you know, 100 people on the street to name some Formula One drivers... Uh, certainly in this country, you'd uh, you get Lewis Hamilton and Jensen Button being named. So to have those two is a good show. If you asked 100 people to name 10 Formula E drivers, I think most people would struggle on that. Well, there's also the fact that McLaren have the street and the track circuit thing pretty much nailed down. They've obviously got Formula One. They've uh, recently been playing around in IndyCar. Sorry, that's to undersell it, playing around. They have been actively involved in IndyCar. Perhaps they've got enough of the circuit thing going on and uh, want to branch out. And I think the, the marketing opportunities of bringing out an EV, even if it isn't anything remotely like the thing that's going to be careering around the deserts and the dunes um there's fantastic synergy there isn't there to use that brand marketing phrase <laughs> so you know you sell it on it's, we're back to the sort of watch it on a sunday sell it on a monday thing again mm. i think there's an intriguing possibility of, uh, of perhaps combining two things so the, one of the big selling points of formula e is in the, the city center races why can't we have extreme e in city centers the ultimate Chelsea think, tractors. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be great, great fun, great fun. Up and down the curbs. I think they'd be great fun pretty much anywhere. No reason why not. I mean, if uh, if you've ever watched the uh, the stadium truck racing where they race around yes. um, proper racetracks, um, but just to make it a bit more exciting, they put huge jumps in, you know, halfway down the back straight, uh, just to make the cars take off a little bit and just to see what happens. Um, in theory, there's uh, there's no reason why not. And if it's uh, if it's all electrically powered, then it's uh, obviously a lot better for the environment. So does it? Yeah, does it just increase McLaren's um, brand image as a green company? And I think this is probably a sign that an all electric SUV is on the way. I mean, Zach Brown, as he sits at the uh, the top of the McLaren Formula One team side of things, he has oversight of. McLaren as an entire operation, doesn't he? He does more than just F1. Uh, his day job is is not running the F1 team, it's running McLaren as the organisation. So he needs to see how everything fits together. So if that ends up being a couple of different racing series and, and they make an electric SUV, but if the electric SUV does well and it allows them to make more sports cars, then then fair enough. Why not indeed? You know, if is is the DBX and the Urus the price to pay for another Vantage and an Aventador? Well, okay, if if that if that's the price that you've got to pay, well it's it's not actually a, an horrific price, is it? Because we uh, we had a little poke around an Urus and actually we both looked at it and thought, Yeah, I quite like that. That's probably quite a nice place to spend time. If you had to get yeah. in a car, chuck the kids and all the stuff in the back of it and drive from here, you know, here to Scotland, it's there's plenty worse cars you could do it in mm. oh yeah and it's got a cool starter button if you've not <laughs> seen this you know <laughs> these are these are absolutely superb you flip the, the little cover off and then you press the buttons if you're firing the, Fire. uh, the nuclear weapons yeah <laughs> absolutely love it a nice james bond touch about that but that's uh, that's that's what a lamborghini should be it should have that that Theater. thing on it that's completely frivolous and it, and it serves no purpose at all other than to say wow, that's cool, look at that. And if it makes you go, wow, that's cool, look at that, then I think it's done its job, hasn't it? Because a, a car does have a purpose, and that's to get you from A to B, but it also has a purpose to be exciting 
and enjoyable and a thing that gives you pleasure. Isn't that surprise and delight features? Hmm. I was overtaken by one a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and absolutely delightful noises went by. Uh, an, an impressive looking vehicle as well. It was, um, it was it, I, for the brief time that I had it within vision, it wasn't very long, it's a very nice looking car. Mm. I, on that subject, actually, I saw in the wild my first Aston Martin SUV. It was when I was uh, parking to go and get my second jab, actually, so uh, made the day complete. But it didn't look as bad as I thought it was going to. And this is no criticism of Aston Martin, me thinking it will look awful because it's Aston Martin. Generally, I'm not a huge fan of all these sort of jacked-up sports car SUVs. You remember the first Porsche Cayenne? It basically looked like a big fat 911 on stilts. But they've they've obviously got the design down now, so they don't look quite so bulky. The Urus being a very good example. And the Aston actually looked pretty svelte for what it was. It was you know, sort of hugging the curves rather than being all blobby. It was it was very impressive, particularly the back end with that big swooping curve over the back. Lovely looking thing, actually. And um, I can see as well, obviously, in Formula One, you see them on a regular basis as the uh, the track cars. But this was the first one I'd actually seen out in the wild. And it didn't look too bad. I was uh, overtaken recently uh, on the M4 by uh, a Rolls-Royce SUV. Uh, I had Moscow plates on it, which is what caught my eye. Kelsa the Rolls-Royce SUV, it, it looked like a Russian shed. <laughs> there's, 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 they know the brick, market. Um, mm. Exactly. But I mean, just incredibly ugly vehicle, square. I mean, all the dynamics of the proverbial brick. Has. I think the Bentayga's like that. Yeah, so right. Yeah. But actually, is is this in a way having uh, having spent a bit of time in the Mustang in inverted commas? We'll uh, we'll we'll not call it a Mustang because it just isn't. But in the uh, in the Ford Mach E, all of the uh, the downsides of an SUV in terms of uh, roll and and you know you're high up, so you get that command driving position. But it means that every time you pitch it into a corner, you feel like you're going to fall out of the thing. In an electric uh, SUV, you have all the battery down low and everything like that, so it certainly doesn't feel as top heavy as uh, as they used to be. Is actually has as the UK government and uh, pressure from climate change bodies pushed the uh, the motoring world more towards suiting SUVs. Is it? SUVs were in demand, and actually the technology is now just finally catching up and, uh, and being pushed that allows them to work slightly better. Well, there's two things about that, I think. One, the SUV shape kind of works for an electric car because there's more space under where you sit to put batteries. Um, yeah. And that's obviously harder if you're building a sports car or something where you're trying to keep the car low and the batteries low. Whereas if you want to simplify it and have that skateboard, you can just put the batteries in a long line and then the seats on top of that effectively and yes you're right the suvs are are in vogue at the moment but i did have a thought earlier on about how we can make them sound a bit more exciting because you know you have to have the sound emitters when you're going slowly so whatever when you're driving through town which is a bit odd and but they make no noise when you're going a bit faster so as soon as you get over whatever it is 17 miles an hour it needs to do something now i had a thought you know world war ii uh bombers where they used to dive had uh a little sort of siren type job underneath where the air would go through it and they'd go as they, as they were diving that's what they need so as that you go to overtake yeah, I don't want to say it, okay? Well, I mean, maybe if you've got an, an Audi or BMW or something, um, then maybe what you could do is have a little switch that, that when, like, the active grille shutters in the front that allow the air to get into the battery and cool it, you just hit a button. When you want to overtake something, it just goes, 
technically coming past, <laughs> everyone absolutely craps themselves and gets out of your way. Just it would be exciting. Stuka. Yes, yeah, okay. <laughs> Admittedly, there were they, they got a, a few things wrong, but, but that was pretty cool. Of, of all the things, I just like the noise. Or okay, should, should we go in the front brake calipers of uh, of electric cars and just a space to wedge a playing card or something like that, so you can have air spooky dokies as you drive. <laughs> yeah, get a spooky dokie going on. Or or here's here's the thing: it's all about customization now. There should be a module where you could record your own noise, so you could have something like the um, the Millennium Falcon taking off, or if yes, you're a slightly different mm. bent. You could have the voice of um, was it Max's. Uh, alarm from phoenix nights where he goes get back you bastard i'll break your legs or something <laughs> similar like that you know very good for crawling around town that certainly get your attention maybe some sound effects from back to the future or something oh yeah it's just as you start to approach a speed it starts doing and then powers up or whatever and you just hear the words punch it chewy as you floor the throttle and off you go yes see what we've done here is create like you used to be able to get ringtones for your nokia 3330 and program them in <laughs> Uh, Poly- polyphonic ringtones. Yes, that's it. So it's a, a slightly wonky version of Night Rider as you're driving along or something. Um, what a great idea! You could download or uh, yeah, you you could download your message tones or whatever as you come to a stop. Maybe the sounds from Mario Kart or something. Why not? I bet you Tesla have already got this patented. Yeah, they must Probably. have done. It's the sort of thing they do, isn't it? We should check and, and do it before someone else does. Yes, it's a good thing we're not alive here, isn't it? We can get down the patent office before we release the podcast. Yes, if you're listening to this, just just make sure you don't nick our idea, okay? Because we know where you live. We do, all of you. We have your IP address. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that's actually a very good idea. I, I'd really, I mean, you could really work that as well. You could have sound emitters all around the car, and then it could be Dolby-esque sound in your <gasps> car. So depending on which way you're turning, that's the way the sound goes. So just imagine it. sound. I, I, I reckon that... somebody's probably worked on that. If I've thought of that, someone else will have thought of that. That's the problem with any idea you come up with these days. It doesn't matter how genius you think it is. Actually, when you look it up, oh yeah, somebody came up with that in 1482 or something. All oh, around you, the, Leonardo uh, da Vinci think... again. I'm afraid. Try harder. <laughs> I think the uh, the idea of uh, yeah of, of noise emitting vehicles or being able to pump your own noise, all those. Actually, just to uh, to hark back to my youth, I might go for a. I've inserted too many subs into the rear of my car and not sound deaden anything or tightened up my number plate screws at all so all you get is that rattle of number plate on metal uh, in tune with the bass so i think that's quite a good that, that's a nostalgic sound for me i haven't heard that for some years you know i heard it the other day because uh, what what made me think of it was that it came out of a black ford focus actually and we'll uh, we'll stick a link in our uh, in our social somewhere at uk motor talk anywhere you can think of to a uh, a, uh, a black ford focus that we saw in the uh, in the classifieds this week so we were we were chatting as we, uh, we normally mm, do yeah. on the whatsapp group about uh cheap cars to uh to turn into evs but whilst i was browsing through for that i, d- I did come across a uh i think it was 500 quids worth of focus at uh i think it was a trade sale so i think i think it was from a dealership so presumably it comes with a full-on warranty and everything but uh p- picture in your mind's eye uh, a black ford focus diesel with a uh, a sunstrip with blood, sweat, and beers written on it, all at a jaunty angle, not not quite straight. And uh, I think that their interior modifications consisted of a can of uh, of Colorado red exterior body paint applied to pretty much every surface that was in there. Some red seam bloods and uh, and some chrome uh, chrome piping to all the uh, the edges of the outside door panels, which was uh, which was very peculiar. And it was uh, it was quite a beast. This thing wasn't it. 
Do you think Richard Rawlings was involved with the uh, manufacture or the customization of this Focus diesel? I rather think not. I think he might be after them for copyright theft. Not. You kind of imagine him just sending a tweet or something and saying, Look, for the love of God, just take that off. Just take it off the screen. <laughs> I'll pay Don't you the 500 quid just to track it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crush it and send me the evidence. The money will be in your account by Friday. <laughs> oh, dear. As one does, browsing the, uh, the classifieds for uh, potential vehicles as a base for an electrification project. I don't know. It's, it's a struggle to actually find a lot that uh, at a reasonable price that you'd want to electrify these days. I mean, the, I, I actually think the the days of something nice that's cheap and cheerful that you could electrify that you actually want is are, are those days just about over are you almost spending too much money to uh, to hack it apart and electrify i mean for for my money if i wanted a car to electrify that was old you know it would have to be a, a mark one mark two golf something like that and they're they're creeping towards well mark ones are silly money these days mark twos are heading that way quite quickly and i think you know your your onion gates what do you pay for that four five six hundred quid 540 pounds i found the receipt the other day um, just roughly these, <laughs> yes at the insurance assessors the other day when i renewed my insurance reckoned it was worth about six and a half uh, grand now i suppose six and a half hundred because that wouldn't be such a a, a reasonable money <laughs> i'm pleased i put thousands of pounds into this um not that i've had any intention of selling it oh but your your insurance company are assuming that it works that's uh that's one slight caveat yes to their they value isn't it yes it is but actually yes. if if you paid six and a half grand for your car and it worked it's that's a bit too much money to uh to then rip out the uh the guts and ev it isn't it it kind of is. I really like the idea of doing it, though. I really do. But then I was thinking about this, and you know, back in the noughties, it was all the go to put a PlayStation in, and you fit a mm. PlayStation Two or something into your car, or I don't know, you've hacked a dash apart because you wanted to fit a, a car computer. If you remember these little sort of car computers, we'd have a little screen, and it would take yeah a minute and a half to boot up into your drive before you could listen to any music. That kind of thing. <laughs> is this going to be what it's like with some of the? early, in inverted commas, EV conversions. Are we going to find that we've done these EV conversions, which I think are fantastic now, yeah, right now, as it stands, what a great way to get power, to have a, a green, fast, perhaps more exciting, in some ways, power plant in some cars. I'm not talking about ripping out a V8. I'm talking about if you've got, I don't know, an old fire pump engine or something in your car. This is a great way to, to make your car better. But in... 10, 15 years, and let's face it, if you've kept a car and you've already had it for 15 years, 30 years, it's 50 years old, the chances are it probably still will exist in 15 years' time. Is it going to be suddenly very out of date? I don't know. Yeah, and I think we're, we're going to hit, in the not-too-distant future, there's uh, there's going to be a dearth of cars that are going to be cheap enough that, that you can do this to. I mean, you know, you have a look at a... If, if you just want a cheap and cheerful car now for... Three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred quid. You've you've got a reasonable choice, haven't you? There's still uh, yeah, a few do. late noughties, early two thousands Toyotas going strong. You got Mark One Focuses if they haven't rotted away. You've got early Mark Two Focuses. Once you get a little bit newer than that, cars are either worth you know a few thousand pounds or they're broken because the uh, the ECU's fallen over or the body control module's fallen over or a headlight baluster's fallen over and all of a sudden that that needs a thousand pounds spending on it and the uh, the Mac E when we were looking at it you know that's that's never going to be five hundred quid's worth is it you know a Tesla Model no. Three is never going to be five hundred quid's worth it's either going to be ten thousand pounds. Or it's broken. 
that's that's it. There's there's going to be a, a real gap in the middle, I think. I think that there could be a market in things things that are basically uneconomical to run on a daily basis but have some merit in terms of being interesting cars. Things I'm thinking of things like the the early sort of what was the Range Rover, you know, the boxy one that mm. looked a bit like a transit, came after the classic. Things like that with the with the Rover V eight, which let's face it do have a tendency to go bang fairly often. There's lots of them around, and you could easily slot another one in. But it's that sort of balance point. You can pick up a Range Rover of that era, because I've been looking and have always looked for those, because I've always quite liked them. You can get them relatively cheaply. If you were to sort of drop the Rover engine out of it and put the electric in, you've still got the go-anywhere ability of a Range Rover. You've still got the instant torque from a, an electric engine, which is absolutely invaluable off-road. But you've also got rid of the sort of 15 miles per gallon thirst of a four litre V8 engine. You could probably find yeah. a drag racer that would uh, buy the engine off you anyway, because they're, they're much prized by the uh, hot rod and drag racing community. Indeed. I think once you've, uh, once you've gone to the effort of electrifying a car, I think the, the only bit of the car that's going to be out of date in the not too distant future is going to be the battery. So I think mm. as long as you're the the battery cell, either you know the, your new battery that you fit to it in ten, fifteen, twenty years time, whatever it is, either uses the same mounting points, or it'll be the size of a loaf of bread, and, and it won't matter where you bolt it in the car, so it will be irrelevant. I, I think putting an electric motor in a car uh, and getting it fully working, I think is is, is a very worthwhile long term investment. It's, a, it's just how much is the base car that you need to to chuck into that. I was just quite amazed when I when I read about uh, Aston Martin Special Works who take on board your DB4, 5, 6, possibly even a 7, take the uh, the engine and gearbox out of that, store it for you, and replace it with an entire EV setup. And they will switch it backwards and forwards as many times as you would like. <laughs> the right All part price. of a very expensive service. <laughs> Talking of batteries, forgive my ignorance on this one, but... What is the situation in terms of leasing batteries? Because I know Renault certainly follow that model in terms of the the batteries. Because we've got a friend who's got a, a second-hand Zoe and um, thought they were going to be quids in. You know, they only run around locally, all sorts of things. And they said, but do you know how much they're charging me a month just to lease the battery? And this isn't without charging. It's like 70 quid a month. Is it yeah. just mm. Renault that do this? Or, I mean, this is it's, pure ignorance. Yeah, or do others? I think do? it was... It was Renault and Nissan, and um, obviously Renault and Nissan have got their their own alliances. In uh, in the early days, I think they came up with the battery leasing idea, as people were worried about their batteries. You know, they said, "Oh, I've got a two year old iPhone, and and the battery life on it is cack, so I don't want to have an EV. That's I don't want to own this battery because it's going to be a million t pounds to replace it." Um, so the idea was, okay, well, it's not a problem, lease it, and it was it was actually an early. Uh, subscription model is it was almost an accidental uh, stumble on the best model of them all which is a subscription model because it guarantees you an income every month for the company doing the leasing it was just more of a laying consumer concerns over longevity of batteries i think battery leasing has pretty much gone away these days simply to be replaced with you know a seven eight nine ten year warranty on the battery itself most ev manufacturers offer these days as although they they do slightly degrade over time by a few percent in uh, in terms of your iphone or your samsung dropping by 10 15 20 percent it's noticeable it doesn't last a day but also the tasks it's being required to do are increasing every day 
the EV, once it's bolted together, it you know it has that one task and its its power consumption requirements remain relatively constant. But you know most battery tests on Teslas and and such like that have done 100, 150, you know two hundred thousand miles show they're still operating at ninety percent plus of their capacity. So battery leasing is is not really a thing anymore. No, a product of its time. Exactly that. Yes, I, I was working for Renault dealer when all this was happening. We had the battery leasing and you had the option with a lot of the vehicles of either buying the battery with the car or leasing it. You could do one or the other. And people were nervous about how long the batteries were going to last, how quickly we're going, going to degrade. You're, you're quite right. And at the time, 75 quid, people saw it as, as kind of OK. Yes, it was an extra cost, but it was part of buying the car. The problem comes now when you have a Zoe that's older and if you haven't bought out the lease on the battery, you have an older car and say it's worth four and a half grand. Do you still want to have a four and a half grand car that you also have to pay £75 a month for? Probably not. Yeah, see, I don't know if that, that raises the question of, yeah, can you buy out the lease on the battery or just stop paying it and say to Renault, OK, come and get it then? Or is, is that, you know, after how many years of leasing something, is it yours if you've paid a, uh, a good chunk towards it? You know, if a, is it like the cycle to work scheme where I had to uh, to click a button the other day to own the bike that I'd leased off them for the last three years or something like that? Was, you know, click here to own it or pay us 75 quid and we'll pick it up and take it away and recycle it. It's like, well, I'll pay nothing and own it. Thank you very much. It was, it was that kind of thing. But is, is it dear to to buy the lease out on a battery? I guess it depends on the company. But uh, mm. back when, it, it might have made more sense, perhaps not so much now. The forerunner of that uh, leasing idea, I think, was GM Volt. And that's why it's no longer with us, because the leasing idea proved to be so unpopular and GM lost so much money uh, and the batteries were so enormous and the leasing costs were so high that the, the take-up was, was very poor. Perhaps... They were guilty of being first into the marketplace. Who knows? But as a as a business model, it really didn't work out for them. And they pulled the plug after about 18 months, two years. I think that was the EV1, wasn't it? It was the first one that they basically recalled them all because they didn't want to be shelling out. And a few people hung on to them when they, yeah. they shouldn't have done. So there's a couple now that are worth a fortune because they're the ones that GM couldn't take back and crush. And yeah, again, way ahead of their time. And uh, the the technology and the the ability to make it work and to make it last didn't meet enough. If they'd come to market with that sort of five to 10 years later, they would probably be the market leaders, I should think. There's a lot of car companies uh, are guilty of that. I mean, how much was the uh, the Focus Electric when that came out? You remember, Gates? 25? Mm, it, was, it was a lot. I'm just looking up the uh, price of a Focus Electric uh, that came out back in, in what, twenty. 15, 16, 17, you know, a, a good long chunk of time ago, looking at the uh, the list price back then, I think it was 31 and a bit thousand pounds, which, uh, which seems, seems like a lot of money for a car, you know, going back that far. But if if they'd have pushed it more, they'd have certainly sold a lot more. I mean, they only sold it out of two dealerships in all of the United Kingdom, one in London, one in Northern Ireland, and, and the range really wasn't that good. But for... 
you know, just as a as a second car, a shopping trolley, you know, I know thirty one and a half thousand pounds is a lot of money for a second car, but for for a um you know a school run car doing the shopping in uh you know for you know why not let every Ford dealership own five six seven or eight of them at uh, at reasonable money and use those as courtesy cars and and get people out in them you know that would have been a far better use of them but there was almost that that reluctance to sell them you know that this was quite groundbreaking at the time and they only wanted to sell it out of two dealerships it was a uh, it was almost like they were trying to put put people off buying them it was like a you know it's, it's a sales prevention tactic it's a bit peculiar we spoke to the md not long after they'd all been defleeted the ones that were owned by ford motor company and he said i've got a field of them and i don't know what to do with them mm. and again we just let well, or just let us use them just just you know, yeah put some stickers on the side of it saying focus ev or focus ev development car or something silly and then give them to dealers and say use them as your run around dropping people home picking up local cars for collection delivery type cars and park them places yeah, at wh- least. whatever it is i mean it, at the yeah. very very least they'd have worked their way onto every single person's p11d at the end of the tax year to uh, <laughs> yes. to help assuage the uh, the taxman's take of them for the year so plenty of dealerships would have uh, would have hopped on with them and you know ford with Four, five, six, seven hundred dealerships, depending on what year it happens to be when you uh, when you push them. You know, even if you just said back in in twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, have one or two per dealership. Well, all of a sudden you've sold, you know, six hundred, twelve hundred of them, and and that's twelve hundred of them running around the country being used and and being advertised. It was that that reluctance to uh, to break the mold, wasn't it? Some of the bigger car companies, I think, have almost been. Um, reluctant to be the first to do anything or, or to have really original ideas which is a which is a bit of a shame what happened to them do you i mean would they have just been sort of taken apart crushed stripped for Probably. parts yeah that's a ter- that's a yeah. crying shame well, really isn't it it's a missed opportunity like you say quite rightly you could have had these things running around gradually drip feeding the idea of electric vehicles to people who are going to have to buy them further down the line why not make them early adopters now by introducing hmm. them to the concept stupid yeah or so, some form of charitable you know if uh I, I think not long after we had the conversation about oh i've got a field of them and i don't know what to do with them not long after that you know the coronavirus pandemic hit well there's a prime opportunity plaster them all up fully charge them and just drop them round to people to do you know covid support whether it's meals on wheels or shopping runs for the elderly or something like that you know you could have put them to use but it's i think it's it's such a the way of of big car companies you need to look at how much uh, with with any car like that? How much time is it to uh, to fix it, repair it, do something with it, as opposed to the cost of building another one or the time involved in building another one? I mean, there's I, I think if they ended up crushing two thousand Focus electric vehicles, obviously once they'd taken the battery out of them, that's that's probably a drop in the ocean compared to the number of cars that they crush every year. Uh, I mean, if your production line's churning out a car every 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds, how many minutes do you spend on trying to fix a car before it's simply not worth it? You throw it away, rip the parts off it and and recycle it and go again. You know, I, I know from a, a few people I spoke to at the mini factory, they'd uh, they'd help themselves to bits off for their uh, their race car endeavours uh, as long as they replaced it and weighed it in. But I said, well, hang on, what's, what's, what's that queue of cars there? Oh, they're all lining up to be crushed. Why? Well, we don't know what's wrong with them and it takes too much time to fix them. It's quicker to build another one. Oh right, fair enough. 
and and that was it. That's that's the way they did it. But if you're churning out that many, then keep churning them out and never stop churning them out. You know, a production line. The worst thing you can do is stop it for twenty seconds, isn't it? Because that's cost you producing one car. How much do you sell that car for? Twenty five thousand pounds. Okay, so stopping the production line for twenty seconds costs you twenty five grand. Don't stop the production line. That's it. Simple as that. Mm. It does make a mockery of uh, the idea of, or concept of uh, quality control that you can't uh, uh, run these and, and, and check them and you know if it's not right, you recycle them uh, and run them back through the, the production line to control those problems. I, I, I just can't see that it's that difficult to do that. Uh, and certainly there are car companies that have done that. They fail quality control, they go round again until they get it right. And certainly... I think when they were building the DB7, I remember going into Aston Martin's factory, and their quality control was was really strict. But that principle applied there. If it ain't right first time, it goes back to the loop. You know, they don't hmm. crush them; they just uh, sort them out. So whoever uh, value, got it, it wrong in the first instance has the opportunity to put it right. And I hear what you're saying, Michael, but I but I do think that uh, that could be done with any vehicle. In the, in the instance that Jim's suggesting, it, it could have been such a, a, a publicity coup afford to simply give them away to charities that are working to help people, Meals on Wheels, whatever it took. I mean, we, we'd have all had one, wouldn't we, quite happily? Yeah. Yep. I know that some of these vehicles, they found their way into life in Ford Security and a few other different places where they would run them around their various different um, plants. And, uh, for example, there's one that's been flying around Daventry. They use it for their security. Mm. It's always parked underneath the bridge. I guess they must use them down at Dunton and such. But, yeah, it just it seems a bit of a waste. I'd, I'd quite happily drive one now. Yeah, I would. I think it would be the sort of thing you could have hilarious fun with just by, you know, removing all the body panels, chopping the body off it and using it as, as a runaround at the factory, as you say, or driving around inside, you know, that, that golf cart kind of thing, uh, or even just transporting bits around the factory. You could have had a whale of a time with something like that, couldn't you? Very good portable power supply, if nothing else. Well, it's like anything, it's, uh, it's time, isn't it? You know, if you look at the uh, pulling a car out of the production line to figure out what's going on with it or why doesn't it work, etc. You know, if you've got one person just doing that, what have you got to pay them? You know, 20, 25, 30, 35, 50 grand a year, whatever it is. And you think, well, hang on, I, I could make 50 grand by building two cars in a minute. So why should I spend 25 grand a year on you? To fix cars that uh, that are going wrong, when I can just build another one in the next thirty seconds, and uh, and that's the same amount of money. It's a, uh, it's uh, it's very wasteful, but it's a. Uh, I think it's just economics, really, isn't it? Not very good for your green credentials, though, is it? You know, well, we couldn't fix it, so we just smashed it up. No, as long as, as long as they're all recycled, it's okay. I think that that was always the rule at Mini. They could uh, they could take whatever they wanted off the cars as long as they put whatever they took off back on again. So if they'd uh, if they dented a door, a bonnet, or anything like that racing, then uh, then they simply swapped the doors. So as long as the metal weighed the same, or if they'd blown up an engine, they could uh, they could rip the engine out of one and chuck the engine back in the boot of it. So as long as it weighed the same when it went back in for recycling purposes, they were uh, they were allowed to do what they liked, pretty much. Well, they could have remade the Italian job properly with them. Well, pretty much, yeah. Unfortunately, the film company had to pay for the first ones, because when they... Uh approached uh, British Leylanders, I think it was at that time, for the cars, and they said, no, no, thank you, no, not interested. And uh, they bought at 15, I think it was, in the end. 
My favourite movie of all time, BMC sold them to them at trade. That was the only thing they, they got them for. Mr. Anjili, or whatever his name was, the Fiat chap, he said, if you switch them to 500s, we'll give you as many cars as you like. The director and producer get a Ferrari each <laughs> as, a, as a thank you. And they, they decided that they just couldn't do it because it, it ruined the character of the film. But, but yes, I'd have bought... made the Italian job with 500s, for God's sake. They, it they, would they have been bought... the Italian job, wouldn't it? Well, they, they bought about 30, um, 30 cars used and then dressed them up to look like Coopers. And then they, had, they bought the, the original number of genuine, genuine cars from BMC directly as a trade sale. Some car companies certainly caught on a lot quicker. I'm just reminded of a day I spent in the company of Ford's man who in the 60s and 70s and I think early 80s was, was placing Fords into TV shows. I mean, everything from sort of Z cars. Yes, I know you're too young to remember that. But you know, oh, these are huge, professional. hugely popular TV series, absolutely full of Ford cars because one man was working his butt off and basically saying, you can have as many cars as you want, it's not a problem. And they, mm-hmm. you know, the TV companies and film companies were taking them up on it. It was good for business, it's as simple as that. Aston Martin in the early days of uh, James Bond, they didn't see the Bond franchise as it has now become. They didn't see it as anything special and they charged them full price for a DB5 and they were very, very, very quick later on down the line to say, how many cars would you like, Mr Broccoli? Because, uh, yes, stick that in front of your cameras and we will go home very happy people. And obviously as well, there was the famous story of the the Esprit S1 that was just left parked around wherever anyone from the production might have been. Somebody noticed it and it became the the hero car of the spy who loved me and the man who was the man tasked to leave it in in full view of the production team was the man who did all the stunt driving when the helicopter was trying to shoot it on the uh, the side of a cliff. Mm. So yes, product placement if you do it right is wonderful. You just have to see the potential. I don't think that the uh, that they were charged too many for the uh, vanquishes or whatever it was, vanquish I, whatever the plural is of vanquish, um, because they provided a number there. In fact, I drove one of the early production ones before they were converted for the film. They were just giving away as pretty much as many as they wanted. By then, they realised the value of placing those products in the right movies. KEO two EWW or something, Some, something like that. Yeah, definitely KEO two. I remember that. It, I, I will say the the Vanquish. I remember watching that and thinking that is that is a properly cool bond car. It's the first properly bonkers and cool bond car for some time because it had everything at the ejecting seat, the the studs coming out the tires, the missiles behind the grill, the pop up um, uh, sort of, machine guns. Yeah, they had the they was they were shotguns, weren't they? They were anti air shotguns. Um, oh yeah, the one that shoots shoots the handbook, doesn't it, in the underground station? That's right, and and of course it it was the Vanish, wasn't it? So. Yeah, the, the camouflage. It was absolutely brilliant. I mean, just completely and utterly mad. A bonkers bonker. Is that part of the reason why uh, why you love Aston Martin to this day? Is that that original, you know, are you a massive Bond film fan? You know, obviously we, we know you're a Mini fan and, and the Italian job kindled your love of Mini. Uh, is, is that why you're into Aston's? I, I don't think it is. I love right. an Aston Martin. I love the Bond films. <laughs> and there's... It's it's certainly the reason why I like the BMW 750. I think that's that's that Best is a lovely looking, looking BMW car. ever. Yeah. Best it looking is. BMW. Apart from the Z8, actually, which is another Bond car. Obviously, the Z8 is the perfect controversial in my. It's beautiful, beautiful I, car. I do like the Z8. I really do, and I think the proportions of it are quite nice. It looks in reality, it's bigger than you think it is. 
the Z8. When you see one on the road, it looks quite big compared to something like a Z3. 750, I think, is, is gorgeous. E30, I think, is probably my favourite shape of, of BM of, of all time. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think the E30s is pretty much perfect. And it was the same with the, the 6 Series, the same sort of vintage with a shark nose. Very cool-looking car. Um, well, the 635 CSI and yes. cars of, of, of that era. Wonderful-looking exactly cars. There were still some good ones about now. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous-looking things, and just really cool. And they would make an excellent EV. I mean, appreciate you means you've got to take the BMW engine out, and yes, that does ruin part of it, perhaps. But if you wanted a car that looks good now, that you would want to drive every day, and you could drive in the centre of London, that would be a fantastic car to drive every day. Oh, six series. Another one of that era, the BMW 8 series from the very early 90s. You know, the the yes. shark again, long yes. bonnet. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't in all consciousness rip out the V12 because that thing, no. you know, the 850 was absolutely immense. But you know, I could just about countenance ripping out the V8, selling it to make sure it went to a good home, and then sticking an EV in that because you'd have all the looks and all the go, and it would yes. just look fantastic. That's beautifully proportioned, and it had what everyone needs on a car: pop up pop up headlights. Definitely, yeah. I knew you were going to say, it, and you're absolutely right. I'm sure there's some sort of geeky fact about about the eight series as well that you that, that you would love, and I'm sure it's something along the lines of it was the first car with pop up headlamps to have a dual integrated dipped main beam or something in the same unit. There was something odd about it. I think it was um, the first pop up headlights that had a projector um, system yes. on it. Yes, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I'll get me anorak and I shall be off. Goodbye. This, this, stri- this strikes me as the <laughs> kind of thing that you would love and, and the kind of geeky detail that I love as well, truth be told. Um, is James Bond responsible for my love of Aston Martins? Possibly partly. I think it definitely... There's a reason why Aston Martin is, is the world's, in inverted commas, coolest brand um, or voted the coolest brand, most equitable brand. And it is because, in a large part, James Bond, isn't it? And it certainly has meant that the DB5 values have soared as a result. And unquestionably, the likes of the, the original Vantage and the Vanquish as well, despite its disappointing interior, the Vanquish, I'm just going to say that now, is very, it's very, very turn of the millennium. The speaker, the speakers, they sort of have that sort of um, Aronite style curve on, on the door. Um, but the centre stack that looks like it's been ripped straight out of a, a Fiesta or an, a Freelander or something just, just <laughs> isn't, isn't great. Um, Nevertheless, there have been some beautiful Aston Martins in James Bond. And maybe, because for me, the Vantage is the perfect shape. The the outgoing, or the, say the outgoing, is, is long out gone now, but the old shape Vantage is the one that, that I really, really love and would love to own. Um, I was about to say, I, I call it your shape. Oh, that's, that's really kind. I'm, I'm kind of a bit touched by that. Um, but maybe because I just don't want to be seen as a budget Bond by buying the small, <laughs> small Aston Martin, I can't say yes to that, I don't know. Uh, but I was, uh, I did have a, a small DB5, Corgi DB5 as a kid, that, you know, the, the one that everyone had. I think it's possibly the best-selling car of all time, the, the original Aston Martin DB5, the, the James Bond one. Uh, I'm yeah. sure that's the case. But yeah, I had a, a reproduction version of that as a kid that I used to push around the carpet. And then when I got a bit older, I had 118th scale ones where the ejector seats worked and all that kind of stuff, which I've still got, incidentally. So yes, I guess there has always been that influence on me. And, and yes, I would... I think I'll always love Aston Martin for that, even if I don't love every one of their cars. I think the Vanquish was unfairly pilloried at the time. Yeah, You're right to say that it did have a lot of Ford parts bin going on inside, but outside it had that muscularity that you tend to think 
they should have but it still had the family shape and obviously after that came things like the db9 which is achingly beautiful but then and i think it's a, a fairly reasonable thing to level at them everything just became photocopier the cars just became russian doll like it was a smaller yes. version or a bigger version of what came before whereas the vanquish had that look about it but it was individual it was slightly more brutish and it's a shame they didn't sort of use a bit more of that throughout the range but you know nowadays the ones that they're putting out i think the new range the the post db9 era yep. has certainly got a bit more of the sort of muscularity again about it and it's it, it, they certainly benefit and it's certainly again something that i saw in the um in the suv that i saw trolling around when i was waiting to get the needle in my arm it's um it's it's benefited from that look the new look i think is different enough that it captures the eye is uh is that is aston martin back then where mclaren is now then going back to mclaren you've got the the five something or other the six something or other the seven something or other they're all just like you say slightly photocopied you know enlarged by a few percent or shrunk by a few percent but they all look broadly similar and they've all got the same engine and gearbox in them and the interior is pretty much all the same yeah. and um is, is that just part of of their growth is that okay let's diversify do this we can chuck out a few different models relatively cheaply it doesn't cost us that much to develop them and we can get a few quid in the bank and then regroup and go again is is that the i mean getting a few quid in the bank for Aston Martin traditionally wasn't a problem. And then for a, for a number of years, it really was a problem. Is that where McLaren are heading slightly at the moment? I think they just get stuck stuck in, in the groove a bit. Frank Stevenson, his, his impact on McLaren in terms of design, you can still see the influence across all the cars now. With Aston Martin, Ian McCallum, he, he designed the, the Vanquish, and I think the DB9, and the Vantage. Certainly yep. did the Vanquish. And the Ford Puma, I think, uh, instantly the original one. Hence the little flick on the back of the uh, of the boot, which which looks quite familiar. Hence why that is a really pretty little car, the Puma. Isn't it, it is, it, yeah. and it just gets prettier with age. I have to say, I, I think I might have to buy another one. But I would say, um, uh, yeah, yeah, a Puma's a good car to uh, to rip the guts out an EV because the, uh, the, the engine and the yep. drivetrain yes. was never the most spectacular part about it, wasn't it? You know, the, the 170 oh, Yamaha was, was okay. It was revvy enough, but it, it, it didn't really set your trousers on fire. There's something about the way that that sounds. It was Ford designed that car to sound good. Mm. That sound design and car of that size and that type, which was, let's face it, a Fiesta underneath. You just didn't really get it in production cars of that time. Uh, and to get that, you got the little resonator box under the bonnet and they, they, the way that they designed the the manifold was to make a particular sound, and then when it got to four thousand revs and took off again, the engine I think was was a bit of a star in that. It wasn't in the racing Puma, but then you couldn't take the engine out of a racing Puma because it would just ruin it. Well, there's your answer. You go back to the sound module thing that we were talking about earlier. You stick an electric say, engine yeah, in it, and then stick stick speakers underneath something that sampled a a full chat uh, every part of the rev range for 1.7 puma and then map that into the engine management of your electric vehicle at this point in the rev range i would at this speed i'd be making this noise play that out through my speakers at the back it sounds great everyone's a yeah. winner well you can do thank you very much a mere all week
you know from listening to my ramblings in the past that I'm quite a big fan of people like Doug DeMuro who's also shares with me a love of the trivia and the quirks and features which I think we probably have to pay him for to use that uh, trademark but he does come up with some very interesting things and um uh, this week he's he's really come up trumps as far as I'm concerned the Bugatti EB110 the forgotten Bugatti and hands up anyone who knows what a Bugatti EB110 is uh, a show of hands from at least two out of the three. To, to be fair, if if you said to me, name a Bugatti, it's probably the first one I think of, which yeah. I know in the age of the Veyron and the Chiron. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, uh, the EB110 is still the Bugatti, yeah. I think. I remember I, I, I had a model of it in blue, I remember as a kid, yeah. and I remember having mm. it and thinking, it's quite cool and quite ugly in equal measure. Exactly. The Bugatti. And the same one. with the Veyron. Yes, exactly. That is the one I had. That's that is exactly what I, I had. Beautiful yeah. thing. That that yeah. French navy blue. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it's a beautiful. It's as you say. It's a mixture of the willfully ugly and the my god, that looks fantastic. Compact. Yes. Compact and purposeful. I think is the thing. I've been described as such myself. But it's a, it's a fantastic looking thing. It was very much a product of its time, the uh, the early nineties. Very advanced for its day. Uh, V twelve four turbos, and that's something that's carried on to the modern day, of course, with the the Bugatti mm. Veyron and the Chiron. But it was an ill fated thing. They only ever made a hundred and fifty of these things. Sadly, um, one of them bought by none other than Michael Schumacher. So he he knows a few things about cars. So it must have been quite good. But I sat there and watched this video and watched Doug revel. He was in his element with this, all the little quirks and features. And there we go, I'll have to pay him again. Another insert sound effect of cash machine here. Uh, but it was wonderful. Absolutely loved that car. And I think it's one of those things that if I did have a lottery win, it would have to be on my list. Though trying to find one, trying to find someone who'd sell you one would be non impossible. Mm. And that's for getting the thing serviced. My God. I mean, the company headquarters has been mothballed for 20 years and has got weeds growing through the, the tarmac of this wonderful factory in Campo Galliano in, uh, in Italy. Uh, such a shame. But, you know, it was it was fated never to never to be. But what a wonderful history and what a wonderful car. I mean, it's on it's on YouTube. We'll post a link to it or just look. Doug DeMuro Bugatti EB110, you'll find it. But I just absolutely loved it. And like you say, I had the model and it's a car that's just stuck in my mind ever since the early 90s. And it is, like you say, Jim, it's the car that springs to mind when I think Bugatti really is. Is it controversial here to say, I don't think the Veyron's a very particularly good looking car either. I think the Chiron is. I think the Veyron has that. Not controversial at all. The, the Veyron's a, a blob. It's a tool, bug. It? It's a yeah. It's it. It was designed for one purpose, and it's it, and it does that purpose reasonably well. It's whether you agree with the purpose or not. It's you know, fast cars of uh, what was the uh, what was the phrase? Fast cars. Uh, it was a Colin McRae phrase, wasn't it? Uh, fast cars are for straight roads. Corners are for fast drivers, something like that. I, I forget how he uh, how he phrased it, but it's oh, uh, yeah. in in essence, any, any idiot can go fast in a straight line. It doesn't take a lot of effort to, and the the top speed of a car, whether it's two fifty two, two fifty four, two seventy eight, whatever figure they come up with, kind of doesn't really matter to to me too much. It's uh, it's how the thing drives and go around corners, and I think that the Veyron was phenomenally quick in a straight line of course but actually when you put it around a track it uh, it wasn't much cop was it 
Well, that's where the EB110 differed because it was good round the track. It handled well. It was one of the first supercars to have four-wheel drive. It had unassisted steering and the thing handled like it was on rails. I remember reading, um, in fact, I think I've still got a copy of Performance Car magazine from the time, or it might even be Car, one or other, where they road tested the thing and they absolutely raved about it. And as you say, that is the fundamental difference. The Bugatti EB110 handled and went around corners, whereas the Veyron is designed to do one thing very well, which is to rearrange your internal organs in a straight line as you try and head for the horizon as fast as you can. Realistically, the only place you can properly use what it can do in terms of top speed is that place in Germany, the era Leeson test track, where you can just about see the curvature of the earth as you as the horizon appears. You can't see the end of the track. And that is the, the difference between the two. And I, that's why I love the EB110, because it is a sports car, albeit a very expensive and highly prized thing that you will never, ever get fixed or serviced if you put it into the scenery. But it's designed to do what a car is meant to do, which is to go around corners, not just head for the horizon at a rate of knots. So although the uh, the EB110 would be better on a track day, it's, uh, it's probably unlikely to make an appearance at a track day <laughs> near you any time soon, is it? If you can afford one of those, you can afford to have the track to yourself for the day. <laughs> you own the track, yeah. I, th- I think you'd want the track for the day to yourself, to be fair, because if, you uh, if you had lunatics like us in our Fiesta ST that owes us negative £50 each, you'd, uh, you'd want to try and overtake an EB110 just to say you had, wouldn't you? Or I would, anyway. So there we are. Straight roads are for fast cars, turns are for fast drivers. A wise man once said. I think I think Colin McRae was actually uh, underrated as one of the uh, one of the greatest philosophers of the uh, late 1900s and early uh, early 2000s, wasn't he? Still relevant today, the late 1900s. It makes us feel 100 million years old, late 1900s. But <laughs> late yes, 1900s. if in doubt, flat out. <laughs> He was a man of few words, but the ones he did quote were quite meaningful. Yes. Mm. He did crash a lot, though, didn't he? I mean, he, he did. He, he, was, he was right, but he, and he was also he did crash a lot. Yes, but he looked phenomenal doing it, and he also he carried on as well. Like the, the man who actually accidentally invented the, uh, the Focus, maybe not Cabriolet, but he certainly invented the Focus Coupe before Ford Motor Company did, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There we go. And there's room in the boot. Just imagine him smashing the back end in. <laughs> I remember seeing him at Goodwood one year where he was just sort of nosing the, in the Repsol um, World Rally car. He was just dawdling it out of the um, the paddock down to the track to head down to the start. And he was just the most nonchalant person. He had the wraparound, mirrored shades, arm out of the window, just waving to people, people putting their hands out. He was slapping them as he went down. He just looked the most chilled person you'd ever see. And I just thought that was fantastic probably the last time I sort of saw him because I think he was unfortunately involved in that accident the same year it was a yeah terrible shame he's a real loss real loss yeah I think I uh, I think I remember that we must have been long long before we met I think Mm. we were we were probably at the same weekend that was at the uh, the weekend that it was McRae versus Burns and they were just heading up the hill yeah. one after the other and each yeah. one was just going that little bit quicker, little bit quicker, pushing <laughs> it a little bit harder. And the yeah. the whole of Sunday, you know, I'd, I'd spent the entire weekend at Festival of Speed as I normally did and I'd I'd kind of said to myself on the Sunday, oh, I'll, I'll 
you know, I'll, I'll see more of uh, of the bits and pieces in the paddocks and have more of a wander round. You know, the the track, the hill climb will be busy. I'll I'll try not to watch that too much because it will be manic. And and I ended up spending most of the day stood there just watching McRae and Burns pelt up the hill, just just taking half a tenth, a tenth, as you know, half a second, a second out of each other every time, and making life harder for everybody else because every corner that you could cut, they were cutting it more and more and more and. Uh, and straight lining things, kicking up the mud everywhere, just getting more. And it was just one of those weekends where you witness something really, really special. And um, yeah, I remember. I think it was McRae had trundled through, and uh, and Burns not long afterwards as well. And he grabbed the uh, the hat off uh, my friend's sister. I was stood with, signed it, and uh, and threw it back with it. And I don't think he actually even stopped the car in the end. He <laughs> grabbed the hat, signed it, and uh, and carried on. And it was uh, that that was a really special weekend. I remember that two uh, two legends. Yeah, taken both... from us way before their time, unfortunately. Indeed, you can only hope they're racing around in God's racetrack somewhere, can't you? I really hope they are. With uh, with Murray's commentary as well, and uh, Mansour OJ bankrolling the whole thing, that would be quite spectacular. And I guess that brings us to the end of yet another podcast. Now we would say at this point goodbye. Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately for Graham, he was joined in his car just as his battery conveniently died so we honestly have no idea what happened to him but bye graham and from me mike it's goodbye from me jim it's goodbye take care from me dave sending out a search party for graham goodbye uk motor talk a first take media production